Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Stephen Oldham, and I'm the local outreach coordinator here at Olive Branch. And part of what I do is help people, equip them to kind of go in and just, you know, preach the gospel to understand how to meet the needs of the poor and, and uh, the needy and the vulnerable among us um, and just kind of focus on the gospel for our congregation. And I just wanted to let you know before I started who I was, but that I wanted to share you opportunities. We're talking about leadership and we're in the middle of a leadership core series. And one of the things I think we can do in this series is actually contemplate where we can take a step up and lead in our community. So at the very least, one of the things we all know that we can lead in is in our salvation. So when it comes to preaching the gospel to other people, what we try to do is provide opportunities here at the church to just reach out. So this, at the end of this month, we are starting up. We've been closed and there's been all kinds of things going on, but James Project, for those of you who don't know, we go out into the community and help someone whose house is in need of repair and you can bring your family out. And so we want to help a person. We've picked three projects this year and you can sign up for that and James Project on, in, on our app or at jamesproject.olive-branch.org. And also what we wanna do is bring our community in. So we're going out and we're, and we're trying to bring them in. And so we're already, believe it or not, preparing for Christmas. And so we are gonna to try to do the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's something that we started in the middle of COVID and had to shut down because of COVID. And half that cast has been still chomping at the bit, but we still have a full set of characters that we'd like to cast. So if you'd like to bring people in or be a part of that crew or cast for Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, we're having auditions at the end of the week. And all of these should be in your announcements and on our, on our website. So I just wanna mention that, because I think if it, this is the opportunity for you to consider during this series where we can step up and get involved somewhere. And there are all kinds of ministries where you can do that. But anyway, I wanted to start with just an opening in prayer because I think leadership is important and I think the one leader that we all need to consult is Jesus. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for the series. Thank you so much for our leaders and our community. And never before in any moment in our history have we needed to just focus in on who you are as our, our main shepherd and our main leader. Lord, all of us from the followers to the leader are trying to honor you with what we do. And God, we just want to honor you today with the time that we have and just with the contemplation of how we lead things and how our leaders lead things within our church. And we thank you for showing that example to us so clearly in Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are starting in on the series. Last week, Greg talked a little bit about the needs for a leader, what the leaders do. Uh, and today I'm going to talk a little bit about who they are, the characteristics of a leader and characteristics of leadership. So a lot of times in our culture, we kind of get things backwards. We kind of think that, oh my gosh, you know, this person's really bright or this person's really good. And so you'll ask someone, oh, you know, oh, you know, oh, my kid's great. And you're, oh, there's a really good kid. And you're like, oh, that's cool. Well, you know, explain it to him. What's he like? They start describing him. Well, he's really good at guitar. He's really, really good at, at the piano. And also he plays sports and he's just really smart at math. And he does all these things. And at, nowhere in that list is a list of who he is, but what he can do or she can do. And I think a lot of that is just our culture. Our culture influences skills over character. But that is really contrary to what the Bible likes to do. So we talked a lot about the role last week and what, what elders do. They're overseers of what we are in the congregation. But today we're going to talk a little bit about who they are at the core. And I think it's important to understand that if, if the Bible describes something different than our culture does, the Bible, if, the, if the world says you're the smartest, best, most intelligent person in the room, or you are the person who just has the most skills, you're smarter than anyone, 
that that neglects the key core that the Bible is looking at. And so that's why this is such an important part of this particular task, because when God picks the leaders of the church, he's not looking for as many skills as you might think. But what he is looking for is this growth within their character. So we're going to jump right into the text. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to kind of peruse through this list. And it's interesting because each of these things within the list, you could preach an entire sermon on. So I'm not going to try to do that today, but there is a lot here. So I think the best thing you can do is just open your Bible with me and just kind of easily go through these passages. And I've divided these words up into the passage so that you can kind of see where they go. And so what we're doing here is Paul is describing how he's going to pick these leaders and he's going to describe what they should look for. And so what he does is he starts to, he starts to describe the characteristics of the kind of people he wants to lead his church. And Paul is describing this to, the, to Timothy to instruct on how to pick elders. And so here we go. He, he says right here in verse 1, he says, uh, this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so that first phrase, noble task, keys us in on why we have to focus in on the characteristics of who these people are. A noble task, we don't think, we don't actually often use these words. That's a very noble thing that you did there. Uh, and it, it immediately describes this particular job as something that has characteristics that are, that are equal to a task. And those characteristics have to do with who you are as a person. He says, if you desire this job, you have to be a noble person doing a noble task. It's an honorable thing you're doing, which requires you to be uh, in character and above reproach. And so he goes on and says, so therefore, if this is a noble job, a noble task, something that requires character, he says, therefore, uh, we must go through a series of what, what should be happening. It says that, uh, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, and he goes on and on in this list. So before we get into each of these things, I wanted to discuss what is he trying to do here? He's not trying to make a checklist, going through and going, if you have all these things, then you are a good person. Any more than if you were dating a girl and you, you said, well, it's a requirement for me to check this off and here's a flower, it's Valentine's Day. Good, I am now a loving and caring person. No, there, there's a lot more involved, but the actions do speak really well of the character. And so in this text, there are lists, and you can check them off. And people have tried to make these lists very complicated. But what Paul is trying to do is he's saying you must be able to see and identify certain things. You must be able to see things, and there must be things that aren't there. And these are things within your, in this person's character. And so he starts with this list, and he goes through the list, and he starts with the first one, which all of these kind of weave themselves into. He says that they must be above reproach. Well, what does that mean, above reproach? These are phrases we don't often use nowadays. Above reproach often is a legal term, but it, and it means that uh, no one can bring a charge against you. It's also a combat term. It means that there's no flaw that they can come and try to hit you and you, you dodge out of the way. You're able to kind of do that. Or it means that when someone is accusing you of something, it doesn't, it isn't rightfully obvious that that's true. And it reminds me of uh, being above reproach is not something that, that just elders are called to, but all of us are called to. But for a leader in the church, it is required if you're going to instruct other people to be above reproach. And what that does is it reminds me of when I was in the military. So in the military, for those of you who don't know, they have this thing called open ranks inspection. An open ranks inspection is, means that you're going to come out and you're going to present yourself to someone in, in authority over you, and they are going to meticulously tear apart the way you put your uniform together. 
And so you spend the whole night before making sure, and just all the time, making sure that each of your ribbons is in the right place. They even have little little measurings, uh, little rulers that you put up against your uniform. It has to be so many inches here and so many inches there. Everyone is held to these standards, and everyone is going to be inspected on these standards. And so a lot of times what they'll do is they'll, they'll actually yell at you in basic training, like, do you think that you, you want to be in my Air Force when you put your ribbon upside down? Or you put your, your badge and it's in the wrong place? He's like, no, 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 that's not how this is going to work. And so someone is evaluating your ability to, to be something, to represent something, and they're going to hold you accountable to it. So that means that if someone comes up and makes an accusation and your uniform is perfect, there's nothing that's going to stick because obviously you followed all of those things and, you, and you've been able to put your uniform together. So that's why each of these things that we're going to talk about in this list is going to weave itself through this pattern of being above reproach. And I think it's a good example for all of us, but I also think that this is something that is required of those who lead. So he goes on, and so the first list is something that churches have fought about, like all kinds of structures have been built around this stuff. It's fascinating to see what people do, but when you get into these words, it makes a lot of sense. So the first one is a husband of one wife, and here you have the biggest problem. Some churches will say that this means that you have to be married to be an elder. Uh, another church will say this means you can't be single. Uh, and, and so I think, well, but you look at this phrase, what it literally means is a, is, is a one-woman a one man. It means if you are a husband, you have one wife. And so what it's saying is that you are devoted to this one wife because that is your wife. You don't have two wives, so it rules out polygamy, the ancient world. People had many wives. They were coming in from secular cultures, from, or for, or not secular, but religious cultures that allowed polygamy, that allowed all kinds of weird and odd relationships, even more so than some unusual ones that we even think of today. But in the ancient world, he said, look, if you're going to instruct other people on their marriages, on, on how, to, how, to, how to appropriately handle and love their wife, then you need to be in a committed relationship with a woman if you're married. And so that's the first requirement here. So this, it, does, it does not mean that you can't be single and serve, and it doesn't mean that you couldn't have lost your spouse and be an elder. Those aren't the requirements here. And, it, and you gotta remember, each of these things are pointing to the character of somebody. So he's saying, like, you need to be devoted to one woman, and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, husband and wife, and the relationship there in Eden. And so that's the first one that a lot of times gets a little confused. So later on he says, you need to be uh, sober-minded. And it thinks like, oh, well, sober-minded and self-controlled. Well, you know, uh, sober-minded is easy. That just means don't be drunk, right? Yeah, it does. But then later in the text, Paul decides to actually add the word don't be a drunkard. So this sober-mindedness is something slightly different, and he pairs it with self-controlled. And so this idea is that you are the kind of person in your life that you've had enough wisdom that, and clarity that you don't pivot left and right all the time. You don't prone to the extremes. You see clearly through experience and, and you're able to articulate something of wisdom to someone else. You're sober-minded. You're not flippant. You don't get off the handle. You're able to control yourself. And so he's putting these two together because it has to do with self-control. And so we live in a culture that doesn't require a lot of times for us to discipline ourselves that we need to be in control of our emotions and our thoughts. Now, there are two kinds of things I see in the world oftentimes when it comes to sober-mindedness. There's one people that say, you know, I have to follow all these rigid rules for A, B, C, I, I'm, I'm perfect in everything that I do, and that's not what this list is saying. So that means self-control just means to be like, you know, never have anything be shown as negative. But again, these have to do with things that are going on in your heart, it has to do with things that are going on in your head. So some people say, well, you know, none of us can be perfect. So, you know, I'm just going to be authentic. I'm just going to share my authentic self with people. 
And that's not what this passage is saying either. So it's not saying that you have to be perfectionist in your sober-mindedness and have to get everything right. It means you're rational and you're able to articulate something of scripture or something of truth and you're self-controlled. But what it means is that when you are actually found out to have some kind of a flaw or something is going on in your life, you actually hold yourself accountable to it and you understand that you have that about yourself and you, and you bring people in. You're self-controlled. You don't just say, well, I'm flawed and then everyone must accept my flaws or I'm so rigid that I could never follow any kind of pattern. Uh, I have to follow a rigid pattern without actually examining what's going on in the heart. And so those are the kind of extremes that our, our country is kind of stuck in. People online will profess all kinds of things like, I'm just being who I am. And the Bible says, well, if who you are is not what I've asked you to be, it's one thing to be honest. It's another thing to actually take control over that situation and grow in that. And so that's why he, he requires it of the leaders. The other one is something that we kind of lost in our world. It's called uh, respectability and hospitality. So hospitable in that world was very important. It was a part of the culture that we've lost. And respectable has to do with being modest. It has to do with being not indecent, not crass. Uh, not, and we're talking about elders. And so typically the, the, uh, the, the elders are ones that are, are, they don't want you to be prone to like uh, vulgarity, to, to be respectable when you speak. You don't belittle people, you're not prone to push on people, you deal with your anger outbursts, you're respectable, you treat people with respect, and you, by your actions, you know, if someone were to be mean to you, it would be weird because you're a respectable person. You ever see like a, a nice man, dignified, kind, sweet, loving, intelligent, and then someone comes up and is like, punches him in the face. You're just at awe and shocked, like, oh my gosh, how could someone do that to this respectable human being? And that's what it's getting at. You're the kind of person that if someone comes at you because of your demeanor, because of the way you carry yourself, because of the words you choose carefully, that people who do that are shown for what their motives are against you. And so that's re why respectability is something that all of us should strive to be. We should strive to be the kind of person that someone goes, well, you seem like a decent person. And that's something that the Bible says that it comes out of your heart. And so that's what's required. But the other one is this weird one. The ancient world is fascinating because like we have the ability to go anywhere and we have all these phones and if we get into trouble, you know, they're, they're, we can call AAA and all these things. But in the ancient world, if you were traveling, it's probably one of the most dangerous things you can do. So many times people will be robbed on the road or killed or just didn't bring enough water. And all of a sudden you're in another country and you have you know, people that are hostile to you. You could just die for just taking a wrong turn. And so in the ancient world, and even to this day, a lot of times in the ancient world, hospitality was something that, that actually, that, that was a big part of that culture. It meant when the stranger came through, the actual best way they felt to make yourself safe was to actually draw that person closer in. They would take them into their homes, they would uh, entertain uh, guests, and they would sometimes feed them. You see this in Abraham when he sees the, he sees this, the, the angel of the Lord coming with two men. And he takes them into his home, he feeds them, he serves them like a servant, and yet this is his household. And so how does that relate to us today? How does hospitality fit into this? Well, the word hospitable actually means, uh, it comes from a word that it actually means like a love of strangers, that you care for the stranger. And in the ancient world, a stranger, a person on the outskirts of society, or a widow, or orphan, these were the kinds of people that God was highly concerned with. So a lot of the Old Testament passages talk about being hospitable. And so there's a passage that even in the New Testament says some people may have entertained angels. This is literally what Abraham did. He brings, he brings the angel of the Lord into his house. 
this is a theophany. This is Christ in the Old Testament. And he, he didn't, you know, and, and it's part of just him being hospitable. And so he said, you never know who's coming through your doors. And so you should always be kind and be courteous to those who aren't new, who, who aren't from your area or you're not knowing or, or that are within the body of Christ. So why is this important? Well, as your outreach director, uh, as someone who, de- who, who deals with people that are in the margins of society, people who are overlooked, people that are often ostracized, people who are mistreated, it, it is our job as the church to somehow reach out to those people. And at the church, it's more than just welcoming people on a Sunday morning. That is definitely part of it. But it is finding a place within the fellowship for people that we're not familiar with to be and hang out with us. Um, there's a lady by the name of Zyra Butterfield who, she talks about her story and her conversion. She was a, a professor. She was a, 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 a devout lesbian. She was a part of that cause. She uh, was really anti-Christian. She could not understand why Christians were so hateful and bigoted. So she wanted to go out and write a book about how hateful Christianity was. So she called the pastor of a local church. And she went there and she's like, oh, this will be great. And he's like, yeah, come on in. And he didn't invite her to her church. He invited her to his house. And the first day they came in, he just cooked food for her, welcomed her, introduced his family. They sat. Now she's waiting to hear all this bad stuff. They had no conversation the first time they spoke about anything other than just life, eating food, sharing about their lives together. And that was the start of this relationship. And what that did is he allowed himself to say, look, I'm hospitable to everyone. I'm loving and kind because you're creating the image of God. And and that started a conversation with her. So she began to ask questions and he respectfully invited her in her house, became her friend, talked to her, and he answered all her questions. And it took many, many sessions of her just sitting with him at his house and his family for her to start realizing who God was in her life. And she converted to Christianity She has now become a Christian and an an advocate for God's view of sexuality, and it all started with hospitality. There's got to be some place in here where, no matter whether someone's crazy or what people call crazy or mentally ill or or, or going through sin or hate us or whatever, for us to sit down at a table somewhere in our lives to open that up to strangers that come in within the church. That's got to be a part of who we are. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't take care of the needs and are hospitable to those who are in the congregation, because that is also the other aspect of this. We're hospitable to one another, because the Bible says that by your love for one another, the way you care and you let people be a part of your own family within the church draws people off. That will show other people that you have my love within you. But also with that, because of the Great Commission and the things that God has sent us, that God wants us to build a love for those he's created in his image and to make a place at the table at our church for those things to happen. And that has to do with the character of just loving people and caring for them. And so that has to be the heart of everything we do here at the church. A lot of what we're trying to do is bring people in and going out to who they are and and getting to know other people. So it's, it's the temptation of all churches to close up their church to focus in on each other's needs and to just rally the troops against the outside. Those are the bad people and we're the good people. Those are the people that, that want to shut down our lifestyle. And that may be true. They want to come in here and tell us where, how to live our lives. We want to go out there and share them about how God wants them to live their lives. And understanding that well, this is a spiritual battle and that that means that if I treat people with dignity and respect because they're created in the image of God, they're more likely to see the attributes within me that, that draw them to Jesus. So that's why what we do here isn't just about us. If we're coming to church and we see, oh my gosh, there's that guy and he's here at the church. 
then that means that we are not leaving a place for us to minister to those people that are out there. And the Bible talks about Jesus, the, uh, a parable that he told, where he, he was trying to invite all the noble people in Israel to this banquet. And none of them felt like they needed to go because they had other priorities. So, he, so the servant tells this guy, go out and pick anyone who will show up. That meant the poor, the, the, the crippled, the, the leper, all of them. I want those at my dinner table. And so Jesus is saying, like, I want the hurting people. I want the angry people, the frustrating people, the people that wouldn't necessarily think needed Jesus. If the, the willing of those people out there that are amongst even the things you think are your enemies. And those are the people God wants us to draw at the fellowship table of the church. So that's, I think, is important. Uh, if you have a really opportunity to read Rosario uh, Butterfield, any of her testimony, I think it's just amazing testimony to the power of hospitality. And so the next one we're talking about is able to teach. Now, here we get into one of the musts that we must have in this passage is the ability to teach. Now, this, this people think often means that, well, that means, well, then all of our elders need to get up on the church and start preaching. It, it, uh, some churches see it that way. But actually, this word has to do with uh, didactic, the ability to articulate something within the passage of the Bible. Now, this is my favorite thing because it has to do with teaching, and I like to get into the Bible because I think our Bible is fascinating. I think uh, you want to have a love for these things, but it's not necessarily the gifting of teaching that's going on here in the sense. It has to do with your maturity as a Christian to be able to understand what God has taught you specifically in your life so that you can instruct other people. And so it says you have to be an instructor to others. It's like didactic, and we get the word didactic, the ability to communicate with someone else, to be able to instruct and inform them about something that happens. Because you remember when Greg spoke last week, he talked about the key goals is to protect and to, and, and to actually instruct the, the, the sheep and the lambs of God that are within the fold. And that's part of what they're doing. They're overseeing and protecting. Well, how do you do that if you don't know what you're protecting from? You don't know what a wolf looks like. You don't know what your doctrine is. And, and so this has to do more with their ability to go to someone within the congregation and be able to instruct them about the Lord. And, and so it has to do with the fact that they've been able to be a Christian long enough in their life that they can actually turn around and tell people what God has taught them with their lives. So that means that these are the kind of people, and I've found this to be true. In my time here, I've been here for, I don't know, I think, just as a congregate, I've been here almost like 10, 14 years. But what I've found is when I've reached out to older, wiser men, it has less to do with my ability to understand Scripture or their ability to understand Scripture in the sense that they understand it like an instruction manual, but more about their livable experiences with taking these principles and living them out. I haven't gone there. There are places in my life that I haven't gone. I'm not a 65-year-old man who's lived a life, who's taken care of his wife, who's instructed other people, who's raised children, or who, who, is, who has been a pillar of the community. We have to in our, in my, in, in understand the value of those who have lived and have gone before. Each of our elders, if you look at the kind of people they are, they have built lives, they have built families, they have been members and pillars of our community, they've invested their time and their energy into the loving and the instructions of other people. So that means that if you're having a hard time with your life, these are the men that we're saying that you can reach out and talk to. This means that there are more than just Greg, which is someone that he's willing to talk to you and, and people on staff. But this means that these men, if you're willing, will talk to you about the things that are going on in your life. That means that we have to open up and we have to trust 
that God has placed people in our fellowship that we need to consider opening up to and asking questions about whether we're living our life appropriately. And I have found that the biggest problem with any kind of leadership, any kind of lifestyle that we currently live, is that we feel like we all have to be these rugged individuals who never ask for help and never reach out. Now, I understand in our culture that if you go around telling everybody all of your weaknesses all the time, they don't really feel like they have the confidence in your ability to lead. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that there needs to be someone in your life that is mature, more mature, farther along in some area of their faith and life than you, and that you allow them to speak into your life and actually open up and be transparent. Now, if you're not doing that, you're not fully accessing the kind of structures that the Bible is actually informing us to be instructed by. And I think that's a dangerous place to be. It's how people get into doctrines because they start getting quiet. It reminds me a lot of times when people get married and they get married and people look at that couple and they say that couple is headed for divorce and they haven't even got married yet. And instead of opening up their relationship to get health and people to speak into it, they close off and say, well, how dare you tell me how to live my life? How dare you say anything about what I do? How dare you tell me that I might not understand a scripture? How dare you tell me that I might not be living out the life? That, that lack of the ability to be open means that we actually may have something that needs to be verified and validated by someone else that God has placed in our midst. We are not islands. God does not just speak to one of us and tells us all this, that one thing. If anyone thinks that, that they have all of God, then, then they're mistaken. There's always some area of what God is give understanding to someone else within the body of Christ that we just don't have. They've learned it, we haven't. We've learned things that they haven't. So we need each other. And so that's what I think is so important. These are the kind of men that we need to be able to go forward and say, look, I need you, brother. You, you, you're a wise, wiser person. Here's what's going on in my life. What do you think? And be open to that and pray about that. So those are the list of the must-bes. And there's, there's a few more that he'll throw in here. But here's the must-nots. And this is where it starts to get kind of simple. Okay, must not be a drunkard. Well, that's obvious. Uh, it's not saying what a lot of people want to say, don't drink. This is someone who's given too much wine, an alcoholic, someone who's struggling, someone who's going through difficult times. This has to do with being inebriated, not being in your sober-minded, as we mentioned. So if you're struggling with addictions, we have a place for you here at the church. That doesn't mean that you're going to take a leadership position. And what often happens, just in my experience, my background is in social work, and I've done therapy with people who have addictions and other things, oftentimes there's this really strong need when people go through recovery to put them in a position of leadership because they, can, they have a wonderful testimony. And I just want to say to you, I just want to caution you, that we need to give these people time to heal even when they're being strong. Keep encouraging them. We don't want to take away their ability to grow and what God has done in their life. But oftentimes I have found, just in my own personal experience, not a part of the scriptures, that it takes about three years of kind of sobriety, of understanding that to be within the proper understanding of God before you're able to really get a, a grasp on whether you've gone through the full seasons of your life. And so I just say this because this isn't related to alcohol, but it is related to some, some of our addictions. For those of you who know, uh, you know, not that many years ago, I was like a very heavy set. I was 300 pounds. And I just wrestled with that, and I felt like I was calling me to, to be more than what I was and to really humble myself before him and see if I can solve this problem if it wasn't just for my health because there were health-related issues. And what I found that it took me three years and then three years of doing it right, for, uh, it took me a year and a half to get it that way and three years of doing it right to now finally start to feel just barely that I'm able to think that I, I'm not going to fall off the handle uh, at getting that inter, under control. The same is true about any kind of addictions, marijuana, drugs, 
it's not great that in our society we take someone who's had this terrible testimony and we automatically make them a speaker, a preacher. Now, that does not mean that they don't have an awesome testimony. What that means is that God performs miracles in our lives, but we shouldn't stop supporting those people and encouraging them. It doesn't mean that they all of a sudden understand scripture and can articulate it. So I see this a lot in our culture because we take people that are in the world that are celebrities, and as soon as they get saved, we make them preachers. As soon as they overcome an addiction, we make them preachers. And so what I'm saying is just be cautious. That the reason why elders that, that need to have some time is that these people have no obvious thing that they're addicted to or that they're struggling with that isn't known by the church and that they have been working on for some time and have some kind of a handle on it. So the next part is not to be violent, but gentle. And I think it's funny. It's like, well, back in the ancient world, people are violent. They're going to scrap. And there's just people that are always willing to fight. And it says, but gentle. So does that mean we go around being meek and mild and just be like, let people beat us up, and that's what Jesus did, and you have these pictures? No. Um, in order to be a leader in the church, you have to be okay with conflict. You, and every elder that's ever served will probably tell you, yes, amen. You have to be comfortable with people not liking what you, what you think, or what you are, or who you are, the people who want to come at you and yell and scream. And you need to respond to those things with gentleness and respect, but with truth. So it says, you don't come up and huff. Like men like to get together and find out who's the strongest, most biggest guy in the room. So, oh my gosh. And they start establishing pecking orders. You see it in like basic training. You see it in the gym. People going, oh, I'm the strongest, you know, and just kind of posturing, getting around that violence. Like it almost looks like, oh, you want to fight? I'll take you on. That's what it's saying you need to avoid. You need to be someone that's comfortable with who God has made you to be. You're not perfect, but you understand that it isn't about like going around and conquering other men to show how strong you are. And so it's telling you, you need to be gentle. Jesus was gentle with people. Jesus is the almighty God who could crush people, who is the judge of all human beings, who's the creator of the universe, the most powerful being, and yet he takes time to talk to children. And so I find this to be the case. I've been in the military. There's a guy named Stu Weber wrote a book called uh, Tender Warrior. And he talks about the spirit in your heart where you're tender, but you actually are strong. So it has to do with if you are so strong that you can't love your children, you can't instruct somebody gently, that you always have to be tough and hard and hardcore. And where I come from, you have to be gangster. You have to be in someone's face. Well, who are you looking at me? You have to always be fronting. You always have to be in someone's face. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that you are comfortable with who you are. You don't have to go around proving it to everyone. And after that comfort allows you to instruct the lives of even the most gentle of people. You see, Stu Weber in his book talks about that all these men were Green Berets and Force guys. They were, they were special forces, but they couldn't love their kids. They couldn't be in a relationship with a woman because they were so, so good at fighting, but they weren't good at loving. And that's why he called this book Tender Warrior. We need to be strong men, and we also need to have gentle spirits. And that's what you see in King David when it comes to his ability to serve God and, and to be vulnerable to God, yet still be a warrior. So that's kind of what his book covers on, but I think that's what it's getting at here. And I think this is something that's lost in our world. What is a man? What is not a man? A man is someone who's confident with who God has made him, is transparent and strong and able to point out when things are going wrong, but doesn't have to go around fronting all the time, always being in someone's face. 
It goes on, it says, not quarrelsome. This goes the same kind of thing, not fighting with everybody, not trying to get into it, having to do with every single time you're the guy who's gonna be in an argument. You're the one who's always gonna be quarrelsome. If you're the one everyone is afraid of because they don't wanna challenge anything you say or do, then that is a problem here because quarreling is something that doesn't allow for people to speak their mind. Oftentimes, the hardest thing to do when you have someone you have a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, is to just sit in the moment and listen to the person even though you know what you think you know. And it's really hard to do. It's something that we all have to learn to do who, who God has given us information or given us instructions or given us some kind of debate. So someone comes up and says something about God and it just gets me under my skin. And I watch people like William Lane Craig just smile and go, oh, yeah, that's not what that means. And you're just like, how does he do that? How does he stay calm in the midst of being some of the most heavy-handed accusations of Christianity. And that's because he knows who his God is. He knows what God has made him to be. Not a quarrelsome man, confident in the truth to speak the truth will speak itself if we're confident in relying on that truth. So not being quarrelsome. Not a lover of money, and this is a big one. I think the, the, the concept has to do later on. This is a love of money is the root of all evil. That's later on in, this te- in, in Timothy. And it has to do with making a priority of money, loving it more than you love of the church. There are times that elders and leaders, because of the positions, and I just want to say this because I've seen this firsthand, we don't often understand what God has people doing on our behalf within a church congregation. You see, I, oftentimes we don't understand the struggles that our leaders go through, the things that they're sacrificing, the amount of money and time and resources they put towards the church when it isn't, and most times it isn't even in their job. And, and that's because, not because they don't have the right to make money, it's because their love for the church and their sacrifice is greater than their love for money. See, we live in this world that says that prestige and money and influence, that's what makes you powerful. And then if I have some extra time, I'll devote it to the church. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that you think the church is so important that the reason why you make that extra money and the things that you do is so that you can bring about the gospel and to, a, to a greater group of people and bring people in. You see the resources that you have as an opportunity to reach people for the Lord. That doesn't mean you don't take care of your family. That's definitely in here. But it means that you're hospitable and, and you're loving and you're kind and you think of the church's priorities over, over your own. And I think that goes without saying. Um, last one is he's able to manage his own household well. And so in verse 5, so he goes through this whole list. And then when he gets to the end of the list, he starts talking about this, this passage in verse 4 and 5. He kind of breaks it up. He says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And I think that's interesting because it's like, oh my gosh, these are some key buzzwords. He says submissive. Oh, we don't, we don't like that. What do, what do you mean dignity? His children have to be dignified. And, and, and we start saying, like, what do you mean manage his own household? Well, these are military terms. This has to do with how his character is affected and seen through the lives of those within his family. And I think with, it's interesting when it comes to families because oftentimes we think of families as primary and we think of God and some of the things that we do with him as secondary. Do you ever wonder why you have a family? Do you ever wonder why God blessed you with children or blessed you with a household? I think sometimes we we don't understand, like, well, this is life. This is the priority of life. This is the main thing. Well, according to Genesis, the idea of the original family was not what you might think it is. So you go back to Genesis in Genesis 1, 28. I don't know if that's on here. Let's see. Uh, Yeah, so we go back to Genesis in verse 1 through 26. There's this interesting statement. It says, now God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds and over the heavens, over the livestock and all the creeping things on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image God, uh, of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it with the fish in the sea and over the birds and in the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, right? It says, be fruitful and multiply. We say, be fruitful and multiply. Why does God put that in there? I, I don't know if it would surprise you to understand that that passage is actually the first great commission. And you think, well, what are you, what are you talking about? Like great commission, this has to do with rearing children. You think about it, in the, in the garden, God creates Adam and Eve. And what he wants them to do, because it's not the whole earth that was, was the Garden of Eden, it was the small place. He gives them a job. I want you to expand Eden to the world. I want you to bring people into the kingdom, and I want you to have them see that God rules and reigns in Eden. And that's what your job is. So how do you uh, do that? Is you take dominion over the wild nature and you, and you bring it into control and order. And so the garden is a beautiful, lush place. You plant the plants, you grow it, it's beautiful. You take chaos, and you make it order and you bring it under God's kingdom. So what do children have to do with that? Well, before the fall, how would you bring people into God's kingdom? Well, you make them. <laughs> you make converts. You literally make converts. And so the idea of this passage, go be fruitful and multiply, isn't about God venerating families above anything else. It's about God saying that in the original plan that I had, I wanted to bring families into the kingdom of God. You're able to make more disciples when you make children. And even after the fall, even though this, this has been all messed up and people have made family above the Great Commission and all these things have gone on, the original intent of actually having a family is so that you can understand what it's like. God gives you an opportunity to witness to two heathens that are in your house or three or four or however many children you have. It is the breeding ground for you to learn and mature on how to instruct someone else in the ways of the Lord. This is a big part of the Shema. Teach your children, O Israel. Teach them how to, how to serve God, how to follow His commandments, and who He is, and that He's loving and kind. And they had to do this. All the, that was the goal of what parenting was. And it was a way of bringing people into the kingdom of God. It is still that way today. So that's why he says, if he can't manage his household, if a man can't venerate respect like a preacher within his own home, he articulates, not with authoritarian, you know, force. If you are forcing people, it'd be like, I come in here, you need to be a Christian, ah, taking away your free will and smashing your face. That's not with dignity. It says, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And I have to say this because a lot of times we live in families where the kids are reigning over, over the whole situation. Um, kids are by nature uh, undisciplined, you, and we are supposed to be disciplined. So they need to submit to their parents. We need to, uh, when we were younger, needed to submit to them. Why? Because they care for us. And the same picture is here. He's saying, like, if you can't do this with the people that you reared, that you love passionately, that you created, how can you do this in the family of God? So think about it. Uh, this is God's family. These are God's children. He says, if you don't love the children that I've given you, how are you going to love the children that are mine? And so he links these two together very strongly. And it's important to realize that. The next thing he goes on, it says he can't be a recent convert because it'll be puffed up. And he says, we needs to be well thought of by outsiders. And so he's saying, like, if we bring someone into the church, obviously this has to do with value, uh, valuing the fact that you need to have some time in your character to develop in the Lord. And I'll talk more about that at the end because I think that's an important point. But in verse 7, he goes on and says, He must be well thought of by outsiders or will fall into disgrace and the stare of the devil. And I just want to say 
um, we have this insider-outsider voice even in the early church. But the idea is that your character of God is, is something that transcends whether someone's a Christian or not. If you're a decent person, that's okay to be attacked. That's what Jesus was attacked for. He was, he was thrown to the wolves. He was beaten and chastised for his character. And that is okay with the Lord. The Lord says, I honor you in that. But it also says that you shouldn't be the kind of person that outsiders can clearly see you're wrong. Sometimes we get a little blindsided in the church. We love our family. We don't always see their faults. Well, your enemy's going to point out your faults. And sometimes we need to, to, to value that. We need to see that. If you're cheating at your work and it comes out and everybody sees that, that's going to affect the church. And so that's what it's saying there. But it also says that you don't fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. And that's really the thing that I think we need to get into. And that's what I want to really kind of end up closing here with. You see, we don't realize that this is not just about, oh, we have nice people, oh, we have nice leaders within the church. This has to do more with the fact that we are in a spiritual warfare. And that the devil would like nothing better than to disgrace your family, to disgrace his name, uh, disgrace the name of the Lord. And he's actively out there pursuing ways to disgrace you and draw you into a snare. He understands uh, the, the forces, the, the principalities, the powers. They know what gets at us. They know how to bring a person down. And so we have to be ready for that here in the church, that, that, that this isn't just about flesh and blood and people, that this is a spiritual warfare that we're in. Because God like, uh, the devil likes nothing more than to bring people down and, and, to show, and, to, and to show that God isn't really who he says he is through his own people. And I think we need to understand that, that that's why we need to do some things. So what does all this have to do? So we went through this whole list, and I just want to kind of close up here and just kind of talk about what does this have to do with me? And I think it's easy to say, like, oh, that's great. Now, now we just put all this heaviness on our elders. So, uh, so I, the question is, has to do with, with leadership. And so the question I have is, 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 how is it that the job of an elder is to instruct us in these fashions? But these are all things that we should be doing as Christians even in and of ourselves. But God knows who we are. He knows that we need examples. So he says, okay, I'm going to make some people within your congregation even greater. But that doesn't mean that we don't have an area where we need to follow it up and, and just participate in, in, in that relationship with God. What area of our faith should we be leading others in right now? We all are going to be called to be in a leadership position. We all are called to be above reproach. As like a, uh, Brent was telling about a story uh, that he was like, he went to this wedding and he was sitting there and he's in the wedding and he's, he's listening to this pastor talk and the pastor's eating and uh, yeah, I watched this radar movie and uh, I watched this radar movie. He's like, sure, you watched that radar? That's a radar movie. I watched this movie. Oh, that's a radar movie. And Brent was going through this list like, oh man, all this guy does is watch radar movies. And then it dawned on him, I've watched all those movies. I've seen all those movies. So here he's talking about this pastor, oh my gosh, this is a terrible pastor, yet he himself did all of the things that he's accusing this pastor of. And I think that's the thing that we talk about. I think that's the thing that we need to grasp. When we read through these passages, it's easy to dismiss them, but it, what God is trying to say that if you want a noble task in your life, if you're being called to a noble task, that this is the area in your life that you need to get right as well. Like we talked about, the best way to keep our leaders in check is to serve the Lord and to serve them as they serve us. And I think that's important. And it's, I think it's funny to ask this question because I think in Hebrews 5, verse 14, it gets to the heart of what this is. It says, uh, he says to these people, he's like, there's all these things going on in the church. And the author of Hebrews is saying, there's all these people leaving the faith. They're falling apart. And he's telling the congregation, look, about this, we have much to say. All of these people walking away. But it's hard to explain to you, in the, and he's talking about the, the leaders in the congregation, and the, since you've become dull of hearing, 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone else to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained and constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Look, he's saying, look, look, guys, there's all this stuff going on in the church, and I would love to explain it to you. But you guys by now have been a Christian a long time, but you're still a baby Christian. You still need milk. I still have to go through you and teach you the basic principles of the faith. We still have to sit here and talk about what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to hear the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to, to serve God? What does it mean to be transparent? What does it mean to be authentic? I still have to go through all these basic principles because what I really would like by now, some of you in the congregation and, and should be teaching others, but we still have to teach you is what he's saying. The leaders still have to teach you the basic principles. And I think that's the thing. We think the people are recent converts and that phrase does not necessarily mean just became a Christian. What it means is the seeds of God's truth, because it's a planting term, have not dig deep down into your heart enough to grow any kind of root that shows that you are connected to the God that you say you serve. And that's what we're talking about here. He's saying, like, you can sit in church for 10 years, and if you at never at any point are able to articulate what, what it means to be saved, what it means to instruct other people, if a stranger came up and said, hey, man, I need something in my life, you don't even know what to say. Because you've been sitting in church so long listening to someone tell you of these things, but you've never actually planted them in your own heart and articulated that. So that's why I say in this passage, it's real easy to say, like, oh, we don't need... We, do, this is, we need to have strong leaders, but that doesn't remove the responsibility of us being leaders as well. So that's why I asked this question, this one main question. What area of your faith should you be leading others in by now, but you still require to be taught? You still require to be neat. And that may be the area God is challenging you to grow in. And, and that's just what I, I want to say. Like When people follow Jesus, some people just follow to listen and others follow to live. And at the end, when bad things happen and they didn't like the teachings of God, a lot of people left him. And so he turns to the disciples and he says to them, you, are you going to leave me too? And he says, where else are we going to go? Only you have the keys to eternal life. And so that's where we need to get to. We need to get to the point where this is it. doesn't matter whether people are yelling or screaming. We need to dedicate our lives and be disciples of the Lord and teach others to do the same because that's the Great Commission. Thank you. I know that's a lot. It's a lot to unpack, but I, I just want to close in prayer because I think it's important to discuss these things. Dear God, thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss all of these things about leaders and what it means to be a leader. I thank you so much, God, for the opportunities to do this. I thank you for just the leaders that we have. Let us continue to pray for our leaders. It's vitally important that we pray for them. But also, Lord, tell us the areas of our life that we need to step up and lead in. Because, Lord, you don't just teach us this thing so that we can feel good about ourselves. You teach us so we can bring people into the kingdom and we can grow closer to you, Lord. So we thank you for those opportunities. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. Thanks.